0: Well, after a long day of teaching the crowds in parables, and then explaining those parables to his disciples, uh, evening has finally come. Uh, We were told at the beginning of chapter 4 that Jesus entered into a ship and sat in the sea while the whole multitude was on the beach, and now Jesus is going to uh, send the crowds away, and he says to his disciples, "Uh, let us pass over to the other side. Verse 35. You'll remember the scene here that they are on the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is about 64 square miles, roughly twice the size of Lake Washington. And Jesus has been preaching and healing and casting out demons in these uh, primarily Jewish towns along the coast. His custom has been to go into the synagogues and teach on the Sabbath days. But his popularity is increasing such that uh, Jesus can hardly go anywhere without huge crowds following him. Therefore, uh, the only place the Lord Jesus has uh, to lay his head to rest is in the hinder part of a ship. Now, uh, the way that Mark has arranged uh, his gospel, this material, suggests that if we know how to interpret Jesus' parables and see in them the mystery of the kingdom then we should also know how to rightly interpret these uh, real-life parables of Jesus' actions. Just as those parables forced us to ponder the deeper meaning of seed and soil and lamps and mustard trees and birds, so also Jesus' actions are themselves packed with significance, and they invite us to ponder the deeper meaning of storms and ships and swine and demons who drive those swine into the sea. It is the interpretation of Jesus' parables that should prepare us now to interpret Jesus' actions. And so even though we're not reading parables anymore, you should still be thinking about what these now real historical events signify. What do Jesus' actions teach us about the kingdom of God? So I'll give you the a division of our text. There are kind of two major scenes here. Uh, in verses 35 to 41 of chapter 4, we have Jesus bringing peace to a stormy sea. And then in verses 1 to 20 of chapter 5, Jesus brings peace to a demon-possessed man. This is uh, one of the major themes here. And Mark has intentionally set these two scenes next to each other for us to compare and contrast. And so uh, despite this being a very uh, long sermon text, it's important for us uh, to study both of these uh, together. So uh, let's start by looking at uh, the calming of the storm. Uh, I'll pick up in verse 37 here. It says, And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Notice here that the ship is already full of water. It says the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. So this uh, ship is probably starting to sink. Remember, there's at least uh, the 12 disciples plus Jesus in there. So, I mean, this is a big enough ship to accompany this many guys. And yet it's, it's filling up. And yet somehow Jesus is asleep on a pillow. Uh, his body is probably soaking wet. Who knows? Half of his body might be in the water, but at least his head is propped up out of the water so he can uh, still breathe. The disciples uh, naturally are afraid that they are going to drown. And we know this is a really bad storm because uh, these were fishermen who were accustomed to fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And so if you know, when the fishermen are afraid, uh, you should be afraid, right? Le- Levi the tax collector is like, take me back to land, right? So, so uh, this is quite a big storm, and these fishermen are afraid. They wake Jesus up, and what do they say to him? Well, they say to him what all of us have probably said to God at some point or, or another. Uh, Lord, don't you care about me? <laughs> don't you see what is happening to me? Do you not care that I am hurting? I thought you loved me. The disciples say, carest thou not that we perish? You can almost hear the frustration and annoyance in the disciples' voice. They're trying to keep the ship uh, 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 from sinking, and Jesus is sleeping. Why won't you do something? This is, uh, of course, a very good question to ask, but Before we see how Jesus responds, I want us to just zoom out for a moment and think about this scene. And think about how this scene might be similar to other stories in the Bible, because that is going to help us penetrate to God's intention for giving us this miracle in the first place. There are many things that Jesus did. John says, if they were all written down, uh, there would not be enough room in the world for all of the books to contain them. And so why did God give us these specific scenes of all the miraculous, miraculous works that Jesus did? So I want you to think for a moment and ask yourself, has anything like this ever happened in the Bible? Are there any similar stories with boats and water and storms? Uh, perhaps the first instance we think of is Noah's ark. Noah's ark. Noah's Ark is the first boat to appear in the Bible. And it is used to survive a great storm, a flood of God's judgment. This motif of an ark saving us through water, the apostle Peter says, is a picture of baptism. So Noah's Ark, baptism, there is a a type and an antitype there. Baptism is a kind of death and resurrection. It is a rebirth through water. When we come then to the book of Exodus, we see that little baby Moses is saved by a miniature ark. It's the same word there for Noah's Ark, teva in in Hebrew. And uh, Moses is saved by this little basket of reeds, this little mini Noah's Ark, that helps him escape from Pharaoh's persecution of the Hebrew boys. Ironically, of course, Moses then becomes Pharaoh's adopted grandson. This salvation through water that Moses experiences is itself a type, a foreshadowing of when he will lead the nation of Israel through the Red Sea. What do you do when you need to cross a body of water but don't have time like Noah did to build a ship? Well, God splits the Red Sea in two. And so the Exodus from Egypt, if, you're just, if you were to just sit down in Genesis 1 and just read through the whole Bible in you know, a, a few hours, uh, you would start to notice some of these themes, that the Exodus is a second Noah's Ark moment. There's a flood of judgment on Egypt, 10 plagues, destruction, but Israel is saved through water. The Exodus is a second Noah's Ark. And then finally, we must not forget the story of Jonah. Jesus will later tell the Pharisees that the only sign they will be given is the sign of Jonah. And in this story of Jesus sleeping in a storm, we have many, many parallels with the Jonah story. I'll mention to you just a few of them. Jonah is commissioned by God to preach repentance to the Gentiles. God sends him to the Assyrian capital of Nineveh, but Jonah goes the other direction. Well, where is Jesus going in our text? Well, he's going to the Gentile regions of Galilee, to the Gadarenes, to the Decapolis, the ten cities. And what is there? Well, there are unclean things like pigs, and tombs, things that were an abomination to the Jews. Jonah refuses to go to them, but Jesus chooses to go to them. Both Jonah and Jesus get on ships. Both ships are caught in a great and life-threatening storm, and both are asleep while it happens. Both Jonah and Jesus are awakened by a frantic and fearful crew. And then it is here that we start to see some important dissimilarities between these two stories. So remember the Jonah story, in order for Jonah to calm the storm, what must happen? Well, he must die. The sailors cast him into the sea. Jonah 1.15 says this, So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. So the miraculous calming of the storm after Jonah's death is actually what converts these Gentile sailors. They they see uh, Jonah's God's power, and it says they feared the Lord exceedingly. Remember that line. Now, what does Jesus do to calm the storm? Verses 39 to 41, it says, And Jesus arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And then notice the line, And they feared exceedingly, and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? In Scripture, in the Bible, and in every other world religion, everyone knows that the weather is outside of man's control. The pagans would offer sacrifices to various deities in hope that the god of rain or the god of sun or uh, you know, the god of the sea, Poseidon, would be favorable to them and you know, cause their crops to grow. If there was a drought, the deity must be angry. If there's an abundance of harvest, the deity must be pleased. But in either case, the pagan mind knows that only the deity, only God, controls the weather. Therefore, what could be a more obvious sign of a man's deity than that he can bring instant calm to a deadly storm? And notice that unlike Jonah or Elijah or Moses or any other great prophet, Jesus does not pray to God. He does not ask for God to save them, but rather he himself just rebukes the wind like a father rebukes his son and says, Peace, be still and the wind and the sea obey him. Gentiles know that only God has this kind of power. It was what converted the sailors on Jonah's ship. And the Jews likewise have many passages in Holy Scripture that say the same. Uh, If you read Psalm 107, it reads almost like a prophecy of this event in the gospel. I'll read you verses uh, 23 to 31 of Psalm 107. It says, They that go down to the sea in ships that do business in great waters, these see the works of the Lord, and his wonders in the deep. For he commandeth and raiseth the stormy wind, which lifteth up the waves thereof. They mount up to the heaven, they go down again to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble, they reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man, and are at their wits' end. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he bringeth them out of their distresses. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. Then are they glad, because they be quiet. So he bringeth them unto their desired haven. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness, and for his wonderful works to the children of men. There is only one person who can maketh the storm a calm, a calm so that the waves thereof are still, and that is the Lord. Who then is this jesus proverbs 30 verse 4 asks the same question it asks who has ascended into heaven or descended who has gathered the wind in his fists who has bound the waters in a garment who has established all the ends of the earth what is his name and what is his son's name if you know What Solomon pondered in Proverbs and what the Jews sang in the Psalms, Jesus comes to answer. The Lord Jesus is his name. And then notice Mark leaves this question hanging in the disciples' mouth. What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And for us who know the answer to that question, well, we are given a deep insight into the ways of God and why he does what he does, right? This is what children ask, why, why, why? And this is what we ask of God, is it not? Well, if you were one of the 12 disciples on that ship that lived through this fearful scene, this miracle, and then pondered this scene after Jesus' resurrection, what you would conclude is that because Jesus is God, according to his divine nature, he was the one who caused that storm in the first place. Just like Psalm 107 says, what are are God's mighty works that he commandeth and raiseth the stormy wind? And therefore, if Jesus has the power to both cause the storm and make it to cease, then he must have had some greater purpose for bringing those disciples to bringing us to the point of almost perishing. What was the purpose for Jesus sending this storm? Well, there are at least two reasons for Jesus doing this. First, Jesus wants us to know that there is nothing that touches us that does not first pass through the hands of Almighty God. Just as Satan could not touch or harm Job unless God gave him permission, so also there is no storm that can harm us unless God permits it. The wind may be tempestuous, the boat may be filling with water, but Jesus says, even if you are executed, there shall not an hair of your head perish, Luke twenty-one eighteen. And a sparrow does not fall to the ground apart from your father's will, and you are of far more value than sparrows. Nothing touches the disciples and nothing touches us that does not first pass through the hands of God. And if God permits it, then we can be at peace. We don't have to be afraid because our Father knows what is good for us. And sometimes a storm is just what we need. The second reason, Jesus wants us to know that he is always with us in the ship. Jesus could have stayed awake in the storm if he wanted to. If he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he can certainly keep himself awake for a few hours if he wants. But for some reason, he chose to go to sleep, to make himself scarce. Why did he do this? Well, he did this first to reveal that he was truly human, that he was fully man with a true human body that craved rest. But he did this also, and especially to test the disciples' faith to bring them to a point of crisis where they would cry out for deliverance, right? How many of us have a very poor prayer life until things get hard? You see, while Jesus was sleeping, according to his human nature, he was at the very same time, according to his divine nature, wholly present and awake and ready to save us as soon as uh, they call out. As it says in Psalm 121.4, Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. And again in Psalm 34, 15, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are open unto their cry. Jesus wants the disciples and all of us to know that the trying of our faith is how God increases our faith. Just as you need heavier weights to build stronger muscles, so also the Lord gives us more difficult tests as we get older to test and increase our reliance upon him. 1 Peter 1, uh, you know, written by Peter, the, the former fisherman, summarizes the lesson of this miracle saying this. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. God sends his church, he sends his people into the storm, but he is in the ship with them. He sends the church into the storm so that calling upon him in time of trouble, he might answer us and give to us that divine tranquility and peace which surpasses our understanding. Now, um, if this first miracle demonstrates Christ's power over earthly and external forces, the powers of nature, this second miracle reveals Christ's power over what we might call spiritual and interior forces, these uh, hidden powers of evil. evil. So let us consider now of the exorcism of legion. This is verses 1 to 20 of chapter 5, and I will just kind of summarize this story for us here. So, having calmed the storm and come to the other side, Jesus and his disciples arrive in Gentile territory. Uh, We're told this is the country of the Gadarenes. Mark says in verse 2 that immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. We are then told in verses 3 to 5 that no man could bind him, no, not even with chains, and always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying and cutting himself with stones. So this demon-possessed man is about as far from the kingdom of God as a man can get. If ever there was someone who was unredeemable, unclean, untouchable, it was this man. It says, no man could tame him. They had tried. According to the law of God, he who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. Numbers nineteen eleven. Well, where did this man live? He lived amongst the dead. He lived in the tombs. According to the law of God, the swine, because it divideth the hoof, yet cheweth not the cud, it is unclean unto you. Ye shall not eat of their flesh, nor touch their dead carcass. Deuteronomy 8.8. 8. Well, where does this man live? Well, he lives near thousands of filthy swine. According to the law of God, you shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead. I am the Lord. Leviticus 19.28. This man cut himself with stones constantly. And yet Mark tells us in verse six, but when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshiped him and cried with a loud voice and said, what have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the most high God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. So this man seeing Jesus and running towards him falls before him prostrate. And then we hear out of him the voice of the demon speaking through him. I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. Jesus then asks for his name. The demon responds in verse nine. He says, my name is Legion, for we are many. This name, Legion, is a Roman military term and suggests that there are many thousands of demons inside of this one man. Some of the commentators think that this is uh, the, the conspiracy of these demons to all kind of congregate in one place to try to take Jesus out. And you can kind of see this in that he both runs to runs to Jesus right away, but then falls before him. There's this um, kind of demonic contradiction in his character. Um, A Roman legion was approximately 6,000 soldiers. And although we are not given an exact number of demons here, uh, we hear from their own mouth that we are many. And if you read the text carefully, you can see it kind of goes back and forth between speaking in the first person singular I and then goes to we. And there's a very strange uh, back and forth. So this is a man that is possessed by many devils. So then Jesus commands this legion to come out of the man in verse 12. And it says, all the devils besought him saying, send us into the swine that we may enter into them. Jesus permits them to go into the swine. And verse 13 says, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about 2,000 and were choked in the sea. So notice the same sea that threatened to drown the disciples and their ship becomes the graveyard for God's enemies. This was true in the days of Noah and the flood. This was true when Israel crossed the Red Sea and saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. And it is true when a legion of demons face off against the Messiah. Remember what Jesus said to the scribes just a couple chapters back. They accuse him of casting out devils by the prince of the devils. And Jesus said, no man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man and then he will spoil his house. Well, here is the strong man, right? This is the one that no one could tame. This is thousands of demons going against Jesus. And look at the best they can do. They beg and parlay to be sent into the swine. And when they do, they go rushing down into the watery abyss. The devil is no match for the Lord Jesus, right? His power is nothing to God, even when there are legions of demons about. There are many, many lessons here. We could reflect upon the nature of demonic power and its suicidal tendencies we could ponder why it is that the pigs drown, despite the fact that most pigs can actually swim. We could reflect upon how Jesus regards one man's soul as worth far more than the value of 2,000 pigs, contrary to PETA. The men and animals are not of equal value. These These are all worthy questions for us to consider and ponder. But what I want to draw our attention to is what Jesus wants this man to go away with. And that is the great compassion that God has shown him. There are two different responses that Mark records for us after this exorcism. Two different responses to seeing this great miracle. The first is from the people who fed the swine and lived in the city. Verse 17 says, And they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. They want Jesus to leave. Whether this was because they had suffered a great financial loss by the death of 2,000 pigs and didn't want any more trouble, or because they knew themselves unworthy to have Jesus amongst them. Like Peter said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. We are not told their reasons. We can only speculate. Whatever the case, they want Jesus to depart out of their coasts. That is uh, the first response Mark records. The second response, though, is from the man who was delivered, We are never told in any of the gospel accounts what his name is. And there is a reason for that. But this man responds by asking to follow Jesus. Verse 18 says, He that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. This man went from violent and wild and running naked in the tombs to sitting and clothed and in his right mind. The one whose mind has been made right by the Lord Jesus, wants nothing more than to be with Jesus. That is what right reason moves the will to do. However, notice, Jesus does not allow him to join the twelve. Verse 19 says, Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. And then verse 20 closes with, And he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him, and all men did marvel. Not all are called to be apostles, but all of us are free to go home and tell our family and friends and to publish in all the places we travel how great things Jesus has done for us, how he has had compassion upon us. The truth is that apart from the grace of God, any one of us could be this wild man, naked, possessed, cutting ourselves, and living amongst the dead. Perhaps some of you even have faced or are still facing these same self destructive temptations and behaviors. The same evil that possessed this man by the thousands is very much at work in our own day. You should see it all around you. You look at the Sexual perversity, the grooming of our children, the persuading of them and affirming of them to cut off their private parts and choose their own gender. This whole abomination called Pride Month where people boast in their shame and flaunt their iniquity and then demand our approval for their wicked and unclean acts. What other name is there for this but totally demonic? Our nation... And our culture and many, many churches have become synagogues of Satan. They have become unclean places where demons are invited to take up residence. And unless Christ has compassion upon us, we will, as a nation, die in our sins. We will jump off a cliff and drown ourselves like wretched swine. This story is meant then to warn us about where sin and unrepentance leads. It leads to the abyss. It leads to the same place where devils are punished and tortured for eternity. Eternity is a long time. At the same time, this story is also meant to give us hope that Christ is a compassionate God and is willing to go out of his way to cross the sea into unclean places to deliver us. We've been reading through this gospel. Jesus is focusing on Galilee. The gospel goes to the the Jew first and then to the Greek. But there's this strange scene here where Jesus says, let's get in the boat. He goes and casts these demons out of this man. And then we'll see next week he just gets back in the boat and then goes back to Jewish territory. Why does Jesus do this? I'll close with this. Take heed. Take heed. What you hear and see in these miracles, see in them that Jesus is holy, divine, and that he wields his divinity always for the good of his people. Behold in the face of the Lord Jesus, the power and love and compassion of God. And then, like this man, fall down and worship him. Pray that you might be with him, for he will clothe you and make you to sit down with him in heavenly places, giving you the pure mind of Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, you know the evil that afflicts our nation the evil especially in this state of Washington that wants to be a sanctuary for wickedness. God, we ask that you would indeed tear down these lawless and unjust rules, these people in government who uh, establish these rules. God, we ask that you would topple your enemies, that you would have compassion upon us, that just as uh, this demon-possessed man was not going to church to try to find Uh, the Lord, but you went to him, so also you would do that for our country. That us who are drunk and blind and unclean in our sin, not looking for salvation, that you would just come and intervene and cast these evil spirits from us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name and amen. amen.